0: Welcome to Meet, Act, and Part, a Masonic podcast hosted by Midnight Freemasons Greg Knott, Darren Larners, Todd Creason, and Bill Hosler. The views, opinions, and experiences that are expressed by the hosts or guests as individual Freemasons do not reflect the official position of any Grand Lodge, appendant body, or Masonic authority to which the hosts or guests belong. And now on with the show...
1: Everybody, to episode 50 of Meet Act and Part. And we've got a great guest tonight. Mark St. Sear is with us. and But first, we always introduce ourselves. I'm one of your co hosts, Greg Knott. And I'm Bill Hostler.
2: I'm Darren Laners.
1: Hey, all right. Hey, Mark, welcome. We appreciate you uh, jumping on here. And, you know, our listeners never know it, but. We always try different technologies, apparently, to, to do this podcast, and tonight is no exception. So, once again, we are here, though, and that's the, the important part. Hey, Mark, if you can, just give us a little bit about maybe your your Masonic bio and, and just anything else you kind of want to throw in just to give the listeners a sense of who you are.
3: Well, as always, thank you for having me. Uh, Masonic bio, I don't really don't have one as compared to most people. Uh, basically, I'm just a regular no title brother been in the fraternity since 2017 so this is do the math carry the one i think this is my fifth going into my sixth year been at the same lodge and over the last couple of years i've been involved in a couple of things where the i feel that the masonic fraternity itself has done a lot of things to Let's just say, make me question whether or not I wanted to stay. And then I turned myself into one of those people that, you know, uh, if they want me to leave, they're going to have to kick me out, you know, type of situations. (laughs) Kidding aside, uh, there is some validity to that. And uh, we'll get into that a little bit. And the reason for that is. Usually when I do other things, when I do other presentations, but outside of the Masonic fraternity, when I, you know, my, just call it my profane life. Um, you know, when I take a stage or I get introduced to any crowds or anything like that, I don't usually do any type of a bio or intro, unlike most other people. Uh, I'm usually just introduced as, you know, here is, and then they announce my name. And the reason for it is simple. Uh, it's one thing for me to sit here and I could do a resume that pretty much rivals a lot of other people's. Uh, when it comes to doing things in the business world and doing things in every other type of, uh, avenue, you could consider me, uh, without trying to sound arrogant. Basically, I've grabbed most of the brass rings that most people, you know, Think or try about, or the books that they're trying to read or find to get to those levels. I actually have written them. I've been retired since 2005. I retired uh, when I was 45. Uh, Both my wife and I, uh, coming from New England around Boston, then basically took a map, darted a map, and threw it at the map, and uh, ended up in Lexington, Kentucky, and uh, moved there with not knowing anybody any family know nothing and started a a whole nother career of basically what i thought was retirement and then the financial crisis hit and that swerved me into this latest extension of what i've been doing which i didn't truthfully even think about doing but just happened to fall into it and Again, that subsequently got me to the point of, you know, I've been quoted in all the papers, been quoted around the world. Uh, I've been to the biggest articles, biggest news stories around the world. There are a lot of times you could say I'm one of the most famous people you've never heard of, and I can make that argument. And the reason for it was basically the understanding of what I believe most people Most organizations, and part of my background, is basically the main focus of my background is business. I'm the guy that gets called in in my uh, business life before that I retired. I am what you call a turnaround specialist. And a turnaround specialist is the person that walks into a company that's basically either on its way out or is just about ready to clo- just about ready to close within probably 30 to 90 days and the bank or the board has made a decision that they're going to do one last shot and they're going to throw one Hail Mary and that's when a guy like me gets the call and I have to walk into a company cold Not know anything about the company. Doesn't matter what the company is. Doesn't matter what it sells. Doesn't matter how big it is. And when I say size, I'm talking about size anywhere from a hundred million to a billion dollar enterprise. It doesn't matter. And go in and when everybody from the CEO down has basically taken that company and brought it to the point of failure, I've got to turn it around to at least breathe some life into it to see it as a running venture within 30 to 90 days and the people that can do that in the business world it's a very coveted title the people who can do that and who have done that once is a very small group i've done it 3 times at the top of at the top of uh the business spectrum and that won me accolades and a lot of other things um again in my business circles but the reason why it's important it's not The thing that I'm trying to say and I want to get across here is when I talk about certain things and I talk about certain concepts and a lot of people will say to me many times, well, you just that sounds just too easy. Oh, my God. Listen to that. It's you mean to tell me that's a one word answer. It's because I know what I'm talking about. And yes, sometimes they are one word answers and sometimes they are that straightforward of what I'm talking about is what needs to be done. What most people don't understand at the top level of business in any of these types of things is it's not everybody knows what to do. It's the doing it. And it is through that guise and through that kind of, let's just say, lens that I have been looking at the fraternity and things that I have been involved with and the things that the fraternity is wrestling with. And I just shake my head a thousand different times and it got me to the point where as you've seen in some of my writings um you know <laughs> i probably ticked a few people off but i'm saying what i'm saying from a from a basis of it's not that i don't know from which i speak and that is the argument that most people and i've had to actually fight with most of my life and the fraternity itself is Fighting it, and I've come to a little bit of a, how shall I say, an understanding. And I, it came from one time reading uh, everybody, one of everybody's favorites, uh, Christopher Hodap, and he said something when I was really in the position to like. I thought I was going to demit. I was. I had only been in the fraternity probably a year and a half, and I was about ready to call it done. And he said, or I read, I don't remember which one it was, but he said, this fraternity is far too important. And, you know, I sat back and I agreed with that statement wholeheartedly. And it's that reason why I'm in it, and I've been doing some of the things that um, you might have seen uh, in different places today. I, I hope that gives us some type of an explanation.
1: No, it does. And it's so, it's it's so prophetic how you introduce it. It's funny. Today I was in Decatur, Illinois. I was coming through, got off and I hadn't been to downtown Decatur for ever. Decatur form of, you know, home of Archer Daniels, Midland and, you know, some big ag companies over the years, but, I was downtown, and, of course, like most downtowns, it's, you know, seen better days, and I drove by the Decatur Masonic Temple, and it was picture perfect of where this fraternity is, in a sense. Important, as Hodap said, you know, in terms of its prominent location in the downtown, just uh, it had seen better days is a, a polite way I'll put it, and it's just, it's you know, beautiful building and the whole typical thing. But, you know, you just see a series of bad decisions, poor decisions, indifference, and all those things we can probably get into. But it was just very emblematic, Marcus, as how you describe things. Can it be turned around? You know, I don't know about that particular building, but, um, you know, it just it, it puts that image in my mind as you were describing those things of exactly where parts of the fraternity are, not all of it, but parts of it are. And, and I'm curious. And so yes. Now that you've been in five years or so in the fraternity, you know, I guess, you know, obviously that's long enough to make, you know, some quick analysis, as I'm sure. And I know you've done because we've seen your writings on the the Midnight Freemasons blog. What's your short synopsis of where this fraternity is? And then maybe we can delve into deeper of of the how or why.
3: Sure. If I had to sum it up as succinctly as possible, I'd have to first say it's got to get honest with itself. It's doing a lot of talk and a lot of this, a lot of that, but I'm going to tell you it's a lot of talk. It's got to get honest. It's got a problem. It's got a problem, and it's, re- and it's about ready to go into an extinction. And, you know, if it doesn't do something soon, uh, everything that's been happening so far is going to continue to happen, and as it gets closer to the end, there's two phenoms that are going to happen. But both are gonna result in the same thing. It's either gonna be a speedy out, or it's gonna be a long dragged out. And the thing about it is a long dragged out can probably last another decade, maybe 20 years, maybe 30 years, but it won't matter, it's still be gone. And then the other one is a collapse, where just all of a sudden, everything starts the same way that you would think of a monetary type policy or or a bankrupt type situation that happens in any company. You walk in, you think everything is going all right and everything is going fine and a week later you find the whole company's been laid off and the banks come in and seized everything because there's stuff underneath going on that nobody knew about, but it doesn't matter. It's gone. And that's the two scenarios that the fraternity is looking at. It's got to get honest with itself on that. The stuff that it's been talking and debating and doing all this other stuff. The talking's done. Talking's been done 20 years ago. It's just that everybody keeps talking. And what it has to do is once it gets honest with itself, the next phase is it has to get religion about where that position is. That's the thing. You see, the thing that happens with most companies doesn't matter where, where you go on this. And it doesn't matter if it's a, let's just say a hundred million dollar enterprise or a multi-billion dollar enterprise. It's all the same. Once it finds out where it is, and it gets honest with itself, then it has to get religion to actually do the things necessary that have to be done. There's no more time for talking and discussion. Everything is fit. Everything is fast. Everything is moving. Everything is fluid. You're going to make mistakes. People are going to make the wrong moves. It doesn't matter. It has to start. And start in earnest and that's its only mission and it's to gain momentum from that moment on that's it and the fraternity can't do it and the reason why the fraternity can't do it is because it has a management mindset not an entrepreneurial. and we can get into discussing how that is but that's the main reason why nothing gets done it's a management mentality and a management mentality Cannot overcome entrepreneurial problems. And the fraternity has an entrepreneurial problem, not a management problem. And it has to understand that.
1: Yeah, I think you're, you're exactly spot on. I mean, like you said, if you had to put it succinct, it is management versus entrepreneurism. And, and I guess I, Mark, I think you may be being generous on the, on the management credit on part of it. Cause, you know, I could argue there's even poor management, you know, at certain levels of it as well. Again, I won't get into who and where I see that, but let alone being able to be the entrepreneur. I, I think part of it is I, you know, it's funny. I thought this as I drove by that Decatur Masonic temple today, you know, we, do we attract, and well, we know the answer to this already. Do we attract the kind of people that are going to bring in that entrepreneur spirit? That they did in the early 1900s when they were, for example, building these grand edifices. And of course, you know, the answer is no, but can, can we kickstart it to your point? Or are we just going to watch to do this slow death over 20, 30 years? Or can we kickstart it again? But can we track those people that can put that entrepreneur spirit in there? And will the systems in place allow that to happen? Or are, we, or are we stuck are we're in that management track?
3: Well, you said two things that are absolutely spot on. And you also said exactly what the problem is. First off, can the fraternity attract the people that it needs? Absolutely. And let's put it this way. I am one of them. If you just want to use myself, I am one of them. I would, I don't know any Freemasons. I don't know even what a Freemason was. I had no understanding it and everything else. The only reason why I came upon and got into Freemasonry was because I did so much reading and trying to do research beforehand. And it's, I said to myself, hmm, there's something here that I that is, is pulling me toward it, and then I went with that. But on the other case, as you said, will management allow? And that's the problem. That's where you, that's where you have to stop. See, the the point is, management doesn't allow anything. See, management cannot do anything to get out of its own way. Management is the problem. Management only knows how to manage whatever it is that it's going to manage. That's it. An entrepreneur is the one that sets the course. The entrepreneur is the one that says, we're going in this direction. We're going to do this, that, and the other thing. And management goes, okay, now I know which way we're going. And then it manages toward that direction. Management will never take the entrepreneurial reins to give itself the entrepreneurial spirit to do what has to be done. It doesn't work that way. That's the reason why when I talked about turnaround and and stuff like that, these are when the entrepreneurs come back in and work from a whole different mindset and allow things and tell people to do certain things. And if you want to prove, if you want to see exactly your answer within the fraternity itself, all you have to do is look at people like yourselves. From reading your writing, reading Darren's, Brother Darren's writing, uh, reading everybody else's writing, and all the pretty much the things that you guys are involved with and involved in this podcast and everything else that you're doing, that is the entrepreneurial model. You are doing the entrepreneurial model. And what happens nine times out of 10, management gets in your way in some form. And of course I'm being very general here, but management in some form gets in your way. Whether it's you have management in certain bodies or something like that who doesn't want education doesn't think that the education should be done doesn't think that this that or the other but yet when you look at the new launches that are formed you look at different things i'll give you a classic example because people so that people don't think that i'm basically going after when i say management but, of course, I must be talking about the purple. Oh, you must be talking about uh the grand line and i'm not I, I'm saying that to a point, but I'm not saying that directly as it's it's them. This goes right down to the large level to right into certain brothers themselves, the ones who complain and everything else. I did a presentation for the uh, Ohio of Research, and I can't remember the brother's name off the top of my head uh but one of the past grand masters in ohio just formed a lodge a new lodge with this brother who's in the uh research lodge and some others i can't remember the names off the top of my head but they formed a brand new lodge and they are going and following the what we now you know we classify as the traditional right the observant type lodge, where they've raised their, um, fees. They're going with the whole idea of, you know, brothers attending this, wearing this. You know, when I say the observant, everybody understands what I mean. Uh, I'm not saying that they are exactly the observant because I'm not exactly sure, but let's just say nine out of ten, what they described to me, I would describe as going toward the observant. This is a past grand master recent past grandmaster probably two or three lines ago in ohio that's an entrepreneurial thing that's not waiting for the grand line to do something for him. that's not waiting for the lodges that they're attending and i mean when you're talking about a past grandmaster and i have i have another one that's in my lodge and thankfully you know he allows me to call him if i want when i ask him certain things on Certain questions it's the entrepreneurial spirit and these the entrepreneurs within the fraternity again brothers like yourselves and others are showing how it's gonna be done it's just on whether or not and I'm a firm believer that they will be able to that it, it's going to go this way can outlast what the management style is trying to keep intact and the management ha- management style has to understand its model is broken it's non-functioning it doesn't work their ideas do not work if they work they wouldn't be in the position that they're in and a person like myself and i've been in these positions and again you could take the entire fraternity as a whole and the entire fraternity as a whole is not larger than anything that I've had to walk into and do exactly what I am saying. So it's, if people say, "Well, you don't understand," the fraternity is much better. now. The fraternity isn't that big of a size to me, and all the things that need to be done are basically the same. But all that really, basically, needs to be done is this management mentality has to understand it doesn't work, and it's not going to work. And you're going to have to stop moving aside.
1: Mark, I think to your point is this management, what I've seen is they're super proficient on how to close a lodge, take the charter and say, you know, we're just the work here is done. It chartering a new lodge is so rare that I think guys have to, you know, there's a process that most of them have never done, you know, because the entrepreneurism to your point happens so infrequently. That we're great at the management side of wrapping things up, but but not so good at starting, you know, the new lodges that really need to emerge, you know, to to carry on where this fraternity needs to go. That's, for me, that's the simplest thing I can see in, in all these bodies, not just blue. Lodge. I mean, I've seen it at Royal Arch, Darren and I helped start a new one. And there were some skeptics, of course, at first, like you mentioned but we persevered and did it, but they hadn't charted a new lodge or a new chapter in a long time. So they, you know, they had to look up how to do it because they didn't know.
2: Or they, or they honestly make it so difficult to create a new body, either through bureaucratic nonsense or through just antiquated rules that it, uh, but to my point, uh in in my own jurisdiction, I was just curious on the process to how you know I would go about potentially chartering a new lodge so i I emailed our grand secretary and asked him, and his answer essentially was that I'm not going to give that information to you unless you're serious about doing it. And my thought is, if I wasn't serious about doing it, why would I be reaching out to you? But essentially, he killed the idea then and there because it was just like, at this point, man, if this is what I need to to go through to to even get the material to attempt to start a lodge, how uh, you know what's what are other hurdles are they going to throw in my way to to before I can get it up and running?
3: But this is this is also classic of demonstrating this point when i say the difference between the entrepreneurial and the management because what will happen with somebody like you with you know with the dealings that i've had with you i mean we've never we've never met but i mean we, we know each other through emails and different things the entrepreneurial side with you is you know if you want to do it, you're going to be like, yeah, and I want this stuff and give it to me now. And if you don't give it to me now, I'm going to keep bugging you for the next 90, 90 to 100 days, whatever it takes, till I get it. Uh, you know, the management side just wants to basically go, um, well, not unless uh, you're really serious. And the management mentality goes, well, I've been told unless I'm really serious and I don't really know if I want to push that. So I'm not going to do it. an entrepreneur won't do that. An entrepreneur will go over, go under, go around, whatever has to be done, be a pain in the butt, whatever it takes. And that's what's basically, in some respects, turning some of these places in the fraternity around. And again, all three of you brothers are, again, emblematic of that. And I think it's growing. I don't think it's, um, I don't think it's petering out. I don't think that this uh with this let's say uh push coming from different corners of the fraternity from different people of all ages people who have been in all uh different been in the fraternity for all different lengths of time from what I'm witnessing and what I can look at and see and just kind of sum up on my end uh this is a renaissance that's just in its nascent beginnings you
4: know this is a renaissance 20 years ago in 2002, when I first visited what became my mother lodge, there was an old past master in his 80s who came up to me and he says, I don't know why in the blankety-blank-blank blank you're joining this fraternity." He me, so going to be dead in five years. And this was my first real time of actually knowing anything about it. I'm like, well, I've always wanted to do this, but on my bucket list, I'll write it out to the end. Well, here it is 20 years later, he's passed away and is still going. And now compared to that time, to now, in that 20 years, we've made, and it's going to sound crazy because the wheels of progress of masonry run extremely slow. But we have gained a lot of things that we didn't have and we shot for at the time. And, I mean, like one of the good instances was just about every – Grand Lodge back then required all stated meetings be held on the Master Mason degree. You know, and pretty much until you became a Master Mason, you were blocked out of Freemasonry. So now, you know, you have EAs and fellow crafts, they're coming to join, they're they're joining and they're coming in to meetings and stuff, and they feel a part of it. But the reason with all these changes that we do have say, there was a group of us who just kind of stopped Dug our heels in and says, No, we're not quitting. We're going to continue this. And you're going to hate us pretty soon, you know, through the purple people eaters. Mm-hmm. And eventually we got a few changes. And we've had a lot of great men who joined this return to be over the last 20 years. And I the sad part is, is it's not that they joined, it's that they quit. Things got a little tough. They couldn't get things changed really quickly. And they just said, well, screw it. And they they quit. And, you know, the thing that really gets me is, is that we wouldn't have a management problem if these people would have stayed in. And I'll tell you why. We had, Grand Lodges are ran by votes. You know, there is an old boys club. We all know that. But they're getting fewer and fewer. Where the people who want Masonic education, who want Traditional observance Lodges who want all these things are growing, but if they don't give it right away. They quit. Eventually, we would have had enough votes to overturn just about any silly thing that they tried to put in, um, in, in the Grand Lodge for the last hundred years, and we could start shape, shaping chains, and we'd make it a lot faster. But people they quit. They say, "Well, it's too hard." And, Well, I don't know. It hasn't happened yet. I've been, I've been the Mason for two years. I still, you know, don't have alcohol in my building. You know, it's just, they have to, you know, if we would actually just continue and we had like a rallying cry where all of us who feel this way can, I mean, the internet has helped a great deal. I mean, that's really what's one of the big things that has made these changes so far. I mean, because we had secret boards back then where we talked and we, you know, Made talking points, and we start converting people. But you know, and then there's another thing too, where guys are just they're not listening. If all the people who want Masonic education, absolutely, every, just about every brother under the age of you know dead wants Masonic education in his lodge, but they all insisted it has to be on a stated meeting. Well, there are six other nights in that in this year or in that in this week. That you could have an education. You could have a book club. In fact, it'd probably be better because then you actually have more things for these guys to do instead of just keeping them at home. You know, they're going to, instead of sitting home watching Netflix, oh, well, I'm going to go down to the lodge. We're going to get together. We're going to have fun. We're going to talk about Masonic education. We're going to go have a couple beers afterwards. You're building brotherhood along with that Masonic education. But. If people quit, keep quitting, we can't get these things done. Every, every brother who has quit over the last 20 years that I know of, that's one last vote to help change things. It wouldn't matter what they tried. We'd be like, I don't think so. You know, and then we might have to you know, argue amongst the rest of us about how everything else is going to happen, but at least we would be able to make that fundamental change, that C word that supposedly everybody's so worried about. But we just have to band these brothers together and keep them going. They'd give us great tools to recruit. Now, I hate that word, recruit. In all honesty, if we treated these brothers better and if we got this thing, done, we wouldn't need to recruit. We would have so many people in our lodges. And you can see it in just about any of these lodges that are trying this. They have standing room only. But we just have to keep the brothers who we have brought in and keep them active. And we have to keep them to where they will help
3: us. You're exactly right. I mean, I I I, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, the the rallying cry that basically needs not needs to be brought in, but actually needs to be destroyed, because the fraternity does have a rallying cry, and the rallying cry is not on my watch. Exactly. Or next year let it happen next year these are all management problems that's the problem see the, the problem is everybody well you know we're just going to get to I'll give you a classic example and I'm not, I'm not speaking out of turn here but I, I'm just going to I'll phrase it this way cuz I don't want to offend anybody i was going to do a research paper and the research paper was on the fraternity and it was on, let's just say, um, a Masonic building. And this Masonic building was, let's consider it the way we look at the Masonic uh, building in Detroit. This basic uh, Masonic building was the same in this locale. And I went through and I was, I was, I was getting ready to put the presentation together. And I went through the minutes and I went through all the minutes of the different committees and everything else. And all I kept seeing, all I kept walking away with was everybody knew what was going to be done and what needed to be done. And nobody would pull the triggers. And everybody just kept going, uh, do another committee, do another committee, do another committee, more consensus, more this, more that and everything else. Till finally, A situation where they could have come out advantageous ended up being an absolute disaster with people mad at each other, towns mad at each other, buildings mad at each other. I mean, all kinds of things, just crazy. And the if I could sum it up, all it was at the very end was another committee saying they need to have another committee. Let's do another study. Let's do, you know, we need to get one more proposal. You know, we need to. Well, you can do that for years. And when you're not spending your checkbook, but you're spending a entity's checkbook, doing those studies are a lot easier to do because they ain't coming out of your wallet. Happens with businesses all the time. Businesses spend all kinds of money on stuff it doesn't need, but it can generate those types of, uh, let's just say, uh, tickets because it's not coming out of their wall. It's not coming out of their funds. It's not their bankruptcy that they're going to have to wait or they're going to have to go through. Oh, it's just the fraternities. Well, you know, everything was closing down anyway. Well, you know, we've got, it's all garbage, literal garbage. And the problem that when you were talking and giving that um, thing about people leaving, you're absolutely right. The fraternity doesn't have a recruitment problem. The fraternity has a retention problem. And the problem with the retention problem is this fraternity has done every single thing using myself as the example. When I had first joined, I walked away, I can't tell you how many times I said to myself, what in the heck did I get myself involved with? This is kindergarten. I'm dealing with people who think they know what they're doing. And I don't mean to say that insultingly. But here's the whole thing. You take a person of my caliber. Now, again, this is going to sound arrogant to people, and, I don't, and I'm sorry that it is. But it, it's the truth. You take a person of my business stature and put me in and make me listen to a business meeting at a large level, and then basically don't, basically if I raise my hand to ask questions, look at me as if, you know, what are you doing? It doesn't take more than five minutes for me to go, what the heck have I got myself involved with? These people don't know what they're doing. And it's true. I'll give you another classic example, I'm gonna, and I'm going to use myself as the example so that you understand this. And so when I say certain things, it's not that I'm just saying and I'm just talking and I'm just saying like, you know, oh, this guy's trying to just say things and he's trying to. I'll give you class. Textbook example using me as the exemplar, and I can back it up with other brothers that were there at the time. I'm sitting in one of my first lodge meetings. We were probably, i had probably been in the lodge maybe within a year, and they were having a problem with raising money. And they were going to thinking about raising money, and they were like, you know, we'd like to ra- raise a thousand dollars. We'd like to raise two thousand. Boy, if we could just. And I'm sitting there, and I said to, I said to them, I stood up, I said, What are you talking about raising a thousand, two thousand dollars? Why don't you raise thirty to fifty thousand? It's not that hard. I'm not kidding. I can show you how to do it in five minutes. And the stuff that I do and the stuff that I'm involved with I do this all the time. I was basically told to sit down and shut up. <laughs> and made enemies. And everybody was wondering why I kind of like <laughs> didn't want to get involved with the fundraising. I'm like, Are you kidding me? You know, it's kind of like I'm the same thing. It's like, do you know who I am?
2: (laughs) But it's it's true. And now that you've said that, Mark, goodbye inbox, because you'll have, uh, you know, at least the two listeners that we do have that listen to the podcast email you about how they can raise such funds for their lodge. but. (laughs) a <laughs> different conversation <laughs>
3: listen I could tell you in five minutes and I t- I tell you in two minutes and I could give you I could give you a classic example of how to do it right on this broadcast so maybe we could do it for another time but i'll tell you I'll tell you something else which is which is I'm, I'm dead serious on this and again you know I keep doing this prefacing you know I don't want to sound arrogant because I need to say this because you know a lot of people just don't understand of, of a person being at the level that I'm at and that I've done but basically people ask me all the time they'll say stuff like you know you know do you, you mind if I come over and ask you a few questions I say yeah I do mind if you want to ask me questions you know that's a you know you can sign up on you know my website talk talk to um, you know uh, Vivi who's in charge of my stuff and you can go on and you can hire me and you know If you want, if you want to have an open phone call to me where I pick up the phone and I'll listen to what you have to say and give you some advice on what you're doing. I mean, I start that's $100,000 for three months. And it's 50% up front before we even start talking. And if you want to pay the whole fee in advance, you can get a 10% discount. So up to you. But as far as like giving free advice and stuff like that, I don't do that. Because the problem that happens is, I don't give advice, or I'm not going to give you the type of talk or pep talk or anything like that that most other people can do. And the reason why I do this is because you got to be serious. I don't just decide to come out and answer questions that people, oh, you know, can I ask you this, or can I ask you that? No, you can't. Ticks people off all the time. But the reason why. I don't do that anymore is because when I used to do it for free and I would give people under the let's just say from the advice category uh let me go off on just a little bit of a um a, a kind of digression here but it but it fits into the point just so you understand what my larger point is here I'll give you this example I used to do speeches pro bono but I would only do them at entrepreneurial centers. And when Twitter and social media and everything was coming up and com- getting big in and around, let's just say when it was really coming into its heyday, let's just say 2016-2017. I used to go out and I would be in front of, you know, a bunch of entrepreneurs, you know, in these entrepreneur centers, and I'd always get somebody from the back of the room. It would say, "You know, I looked at your website, I looked at this, I looked at that and you know, you don't have that many followers, or you don't uh, use social media. Uh, you know, and I looked at your website, and your traffic to your website, you know, is uh, very low. So, blah, blah, blah. Why should we be listening? You know, I get these type of a question. It would be the kind of thing that people would be like, you know, let's go stump the teacher. Let's go have some fun. And especially during this period of time, I'm in an entrepreneurial setting, and these guys are all social media Ooh, they're the brightest and, and doing all the social media stuff and blah blah blah. And I would say, okay, let's do this. You have, I'm gonna say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take for, um, you know, let's do some comparison. Do you use social media? And they'd be like, oh, yeah, of course. I mean, I'm involved. I have my companies based on social media. I said, great. I said, what do you You What do you use, Twitter or something like that? Oh, yeah. I said, well, you have followers on Twitter? Oh, yeah, I've got 25,000 followers on Twitter. I said, 25,000, that sounds like a lot. Is that a lot? And then, you know, you hear the snickering in the move room because, you know, this this old guy doesn't know what the hell he's talking about. So it's kind of like, oh yeah, you know, 25,000. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, okay. I said, you say my website doesn't have that many hits and that stuff. And I understand that. And that's, that's fine. What would you think is a lot of hits? Would you think that, you know, 100,000 hits, 500,000 hits, 10 hits? Uh, you know, wh- what would be the figure that you would think that is a lot of hits to a website to give it relevance in your world? Maybe, you know, come up with like, you know, if you were getting like, you know, 30,000, 50,000, 100,000 hits a day, uh, that would be, that's okay. So let's use those assumptions that you're using. And I'm going to use my website. And I'm going to use my not using social media at all. I don't even have an account on social media. And I'm going to use just my website, and I'm going to use one hit a month. And I'm going to put my one hit to your website of a 100,000 a day and your 25,000 Twitter followers. I'm going to put my one up to yours. Do you think that's a fair comparison? Do you, do you think, you know, you want to go through the numbers here? You want to see who's using the media and the web better? And this is where the room goes quiet now because all of a sudden they're like, who, wait a second, wait, one? What's he going to try to trick somebody? And then finally again, you know, let's do it. And I said, here's the problem that you you understand. You're going to 25,000 people and that's great. You think your metrics and everything else is something great. And that's fine. But the problem is you don't understand what your metrics really mean. That's your problem. And you think you do. And you think you do. And you think you're actually smart about it because here you are hitting me up on the stage in front of all these other entrepreneurs like you're going to trick the teacher. And I'm only going to use just one. So here's the key. Using my just one, I'll just use one news site that comes and takes my writings off of my website and puts them on their publication or quotes me in their publication. And I'll just use one and I'll use one of the smaller ones, but it's an influential one. So let's use it and let's just use the Dow Jones market watch. Market watch has a circulation anywhere between 45 to 75 million It's Twitter followers are 3 million So when they run me in a story and they take me and they put me on their front page and I go out to their Twitter I with one hit to my website that just happened to be MarketWatch, I now encompass 25 million people and 3 million Twitter Not counting Facebook or anything else, and I don't even have an account. Who's using social media and website presence better, me or you? Simple as that. And that's why I get paid the big bucks. And that's a true story. Because you can go with, on average, with no social media, no Twitter, No Facebook, no nothing. On average, my presence on the web any day that was reading my work around the globe, on average, was anywhere between 25 to 50 million per week minimum. When I was on the front page of Drudge, when they were doing a billion, I was on there. And I can barely spell cat without spell (laughs) checker.
4: Oh, that's funny.
3: But that's the world I come from. That's the way I talk. That's the way I talk about doing things and understanding business and understanding situations and understanding metrics. In understanding everything else because i have been proved to be correct at the highest levels of finance the highest level of finance and the highest places again worldwide against bar none and had my stuff run side by side with the people like you know if you want to go into Motivation and marketing with Seth Godin or you want to go into uh, philosophy and understanding business with uh, Nassim Tlaib and other people like David Stockman and everything, either side by side with them or they were taking my stuff and scraping it off of my website and putting it on theirs to send out to their subscribers. So I have to know of what I speak. And that's the reason why I sound arrogant to people, but what you have to understand is people at the top of the food chain in business, this is how they think and talk. They don't play games. I'm usually the guy that I get brought in to a meeting with people. I used to be the guy. I don't do it anymore. But I'd be brought into a meeting with people. And as soon as I started opening up my mouth, The person who brought me in would start to sweat because, you know, I have I would have a person go, well, you know, I have a Ph.D. And I say, don't worry about it. I'll keep it slow. You can keep up. And it would just take the wind out of their sails. But I'd have to take the wind out of their sails because they the problem was they had to understand uh, what they thought was giving them their advantage was not. And they needed to be knocked back. And that's why again, I talk the way that I do. And that's the way people at the top of the, let's just say business and finance and everything else. It's the way they talk. It's the way they act. They don't look for a bunch of flowery words with 17,000 pages to tell them that they need to go. They go. When somebody calls me up or somebody says to me, Mark, I need your advice. And I say to them, "Say to them, and let's just say they're, they're either held on retainer or they're a friend of mine. And they say, listen, I'm thinking about this. I'm thinking about that and blah, blah, blah and everything else. And it's going to be this. What do you think? I say, why are you asking me? You should have went 10 minutes ago. Goodbye. Somebody might pay $100,000 for that piece of advice. It might be that short. And I'd hang up the phone. But the reason why the people pay that kind of money is because they need that type of advice and all they want to do is hear from somebody that they understand knows what's going on at their level. They don't need it to be explained to them. They just might be a little bit unsure of what they're thinking about at the time. And they just need to hear the voice to say, go. It's like the old Henny Youngman. It might be, it was either Henny Youngman or, uh, maybe it was Rodney Dangerfield, where he walks into his doctor and he says, you know, doctor, uh, every time I, what's wrong? Every time I go like this, it hurts. We'll stop doing, we'll stop doing that. That'll be $250. Me, it be 250 grand. But in business, if it saves you 25 million, it's not an expense. It's an investment.
2: So so Mark what if let's say that uh I I am a genie and I have the power to make you the supreme grandmaster of of all of Freemasonry what is the the one thing that you would implement right now what would you do to to change our culture trajectory whatever you want what what is I'm giving you a carte blanche here what would you do
3: all right, let me give it to you this way, and I'll give it to you as, as succinct as possible. What I would do is I would sit down with, uh, let's just say it's just one table, right? You, you're, you're telling me, you're making me grand poobah like like I'm going to be in charge of the entire fraternity, right? Yep. Okay. So I'm going to call you, we're going to sit down, we're going to walk into the table, and I'm going to tell you here's what we're going to do. The fraternity right now, at this point, right now charges, I'm just going to use the number right now, uh, on average, we charge $100 a year for uh, dues, and we have a million members. We're going to take the dues and we're going to triple it starting tomorrow, this next dues season, we're going to st- st- start tomorrow. Dues is going from 100 to 300 and I expect to lose two thirds of all members. I expect 60% of the membership to quit. And with that 60% of membership gone, management, as far as all the grand lines, all the grand uh, things, all the DDMs, and all the stuff that they have to do, all of their workload is going to be reduced down by two thirds. As a matter of fact, I'd like all the grand lines and when everything else, whatever it is, to be, let's just say, brought down to the level that can service one-third of the fraternity in the way that it should be and it needs to be. And I want that done tomorrow. And please don't anybody tell me that you can't do this. What are we going to do about the bills and money? Because actually you'll have more money coming in than you do today. Do the math. You're Not only that, you'll reduce expenses. And the one-third that you have, the people that stay are going to be dedicated to the crowd. They're going to be the ones that are going to be here to rebuild what needs to be built. And start from here. And I don't think you'd lose two-thirds. But I'd be willing to say, you're going to lose two-thirds. Understand that. And again, please don't talk to me about money. The fraternity would be making and bringing in more money than it does with two-thirds less members. And it would be stronger. That I would do that on day one. and I would do it and I I have the let's just say the track record of doing it because decisions is what people can't do you know basically what people don't understand for management in business consulting whatever you want to talk about in business you come to find out if you've done anything really worthwhile in business and you've gotten some real let's just say understanding underneath your belt, you find out that there's no more than a dozen things that affect any company of any size. It's just about a dozen. And once you understand and you know and you can see those dozen points, you can go in and run any company in the world. I, can, I don't care what company it is, I can go in and run it tomorrow. Any of them. Because the difference that most people don't understand is I don't need to know your company. I don't need to know your product. I don't need to know if you're selling rocket ships to moon. It doesn't matter. I don't care. That's for management. Entrepreneurs, and or turnaround especially, is understanding people. It's all about people. Not the business. To be successful in business, you got to learn and understand people first. And the business will follow. I mean, of course, don't get me wrong. You know, a lot of people, well, they want to cut this up at the and say, well, what do you mean? You don't got to know. That's not what I'm saying. You're going to have a general knowledge of the business. And the people that you'll have underneath you will have even more entailed knowledge of the business. But to run a business. From an entrepreneurial standpoint and make it so that it's going to take over the world you have to understand people and there are about 12 different things that you have to understand and be able to negotiate and realize in real time and make decisions on the fly and be capable and most important be confident that you can make those decisions And that you're going to be wrong on some, but it doesn't matter. You might be wrong, but you'll figure it out. You'll rectify it some other way. You'll fix it on the fly. But first off, you have to make the decisions. Think about it. Just use the old, you know, you can use Star Trek if you want, which I love to use. I use in presentations all the time. Remember Captain Kirk? One thing about Captain Kirk and through all the enterprises, Captain Kirk, it was all about the ship, right? All about the ship and the crew. Everything else didn't matter. It was save the ship, save the crew. But if he had to scuttle the ship to save the crew, he would. And he would make that decision no matter how hard it would be, he would do it. That's what captains do. And being that captain is a totally different position than being the first officer. And that's the difference that most people don't understand when you want to make and do things and really make a difference in anything. It's making the commitment and then following through. People make the commitment, but they don't follow through. People think they're following through, but they're not. And people think they're making a commitment but they're not just like a lot of people think they're in business but they're in a hobby i have a garage sale i know about business yeah make garage sales your business and watch how it changes you cannot do your own garage sale the way you can if you do your own garage sales as a business They don't work the same. You can go to the flea market and do a business in flea market. But that doesn't mean you're in the flea market business. Totally different mindset. Totally different set of skills that you're going to need to know. And they all come back to those 12 that I'm saying. But again, I mean, because I can go on for... I'm like a wind-up doll sometimes. I can go on for ages here. Uh, But if I needed to do something the number one thing that I would do with fraternity is exactly what I would say,
2: yeah, and it's uh it's funny and also sad that the same guys that I've seen you know vote against per capita increases of like five dollars per year in a grand large session are the same guys who are out front smoking you know a a pack of siggies that costs about ten cost them ten bucks a day or if they're doing two packs now twenty bucks a day, you know what I mean it's just uh it the 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 value exchange for, uh, I think, for the the typical Freemason just isn't there. Like, they don't, I don't think they quite understand financially, you know, what type of, uh, what type of, uh, decision making that, that they're making. Their priorities are not in the right place and, and we're in this current mess.
3: Well, the other part about it is too, the main thing is they're always, well, we'll lose members and I don't want to lose members under my watch. That's the problem. I don't want to be the one known to have raised rates and have lost members. And then I'm looked at as I contributed to this problem. It's always, let, let the next guy do it. Let the next, let the next management team figure this out. You can't. What you have to understand is you're going to lose and you're going to lose members. But again, as I go, we go back, if we want to talk about the money, you know, this is the fraternity is making itself into a poor man's elks or rotary. You know, rotary and these type of organizations tried to get me to join for years. I wouldn't. It just wasn't my bag. But you know, the thing about royalty is, you know, it costs a little bit more. But you know what? They have a dinner with a speaker, and everybody gets together, and the room is full, and people feel like they're actually doing something, even if it's to basically try to sell and uh, network over each other's shoulders. They feel like they're getting something out of it. You walk into a Masonic Lodge half the time, and you're waiting to get something out of it. And the first thing the Lodge does is put you through business meetings. And there's nothing there. Nothing. And especially if you're a business person. If you're a business person, you look at this stuff and you say, are you kidding me?
2: Yeah, I, I, I mean, and Greg, I'll let you chime in here as well. Uh, I think we both are of the, the same mindset that, you know, 90% of the business meeting could be handled outside of the meeting. The only, the only thing that you really need to bring up in, in the meeting are, are the objects or the items of business that require a vote according to your bylaws. That's it. Something everything else, <laughs> everything should be handled, right?
3: It's simple, it, as simple as that. I mean, why do you have, a committee to handle the building. If they get a meet, to tell you what's going on in the be- in the building, handle the building. Call us into a meeting when you we need to know that we've got to replace a pipe and you got to spend some money. Other than that, what do I need to know? But see, the problem that's happened with a lot of this comes from in the 1920s and the 30s and the 40s that was going through all. Nobody knew what to do. So you had meetings and you had a meeting full of people and everybody just said, well, we'll do this and this will take up the time and then we can go smoke cigars and do whatever. Well, it's just still doing that. Just nobody shows up anymore. That whole mindset, that whole mentality, that whole thing is gone because what brought people to masonry has been forgotten by the fraternity itself but not by everybody you people you three are three classic examples of the people that are not standing by and you need to be you need to be acknowledged for that too and i i, I just want to make sure uh that gets out there you you really need and you should be Appreciate it.
2: I know I do. Well, I, I appreciate that, uh, Mark. I really do. Uh, I know that, uh, that I don't do it for the accolades. I do it for the, the love of, uh, the love that I have for the fraternity and the hope that, uh, you know, I have brethren out there like yourself that are like-minded and, and, you know, we're, we're fighting for this change desperately. So, you know, that's what keeps me going.
3: Right, because the other part about this is too, I did, I, I wanted to make this point earlier and I didn't, it just came back to me as you were saying that. And this is a classic of where you, it shows people like yourselves in direct contrast to a lot of the different, um, areas of fraternity. And that's this. Too many people in this fraternity at all levels take this as a hobby. It is not. And that's part of the problem also. And far too many people get and do things in this fraternity and treat whatever they're doing and their, let's just say, their zeal for it as if it's a hobby. So in other words, well, if I get a little bit too busy or blah, 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 well, I didn't get a chance to do that if it has something to do masonically that you're supposed to do for the lodge or do for another brother or whatever, I was busy. You know, business got in my way and I wasn't really able to... Well, that's in a hobby sense. See, that's like running a business as a hobby. You're not in business, you're doing a hobby. And when you don't treat it as a hobby and you treat it with the dignity and also the commitment that it demands and should have been understood to demand when you came in myself included you start to look at things differently there is no excuse sure things get busy life happens But that doesn't mean because life happens and you got busy, you didn't find a replacement to take care of what you were supposed to have done in a good, meaningful time or had backup that was able to cover for you in about as seamless as a, a situation as possible because you took that commitment for whatever it was that you were doing as a commitment on your word and everything else. That's what Freemasonry is, part of it. And people don't, I see far too far too often. I've been involved with it myself. It's happened far too many. Go someplace, I mean, I've been to giving a presentation, and you hear the horror stories from everybody. I've heard this throughout the fraternity. But one of my own was I went to a presentation And I was going to give a presentation and you go there and the person is late to open the lodge for you. And it's kind of like you get an attitude that, well, stuff come up, but they're there. So get off their back. And then you walk in and you say, okay, so where am I supposed to stand? Where am I supposed to go? Is there a screen here? Is there a microphone and stuff like that? Oh, I don't know. I think it's somewhere in the back. Hopefully the door isn't locked. Wait a second. You have it a speaker here? You have an, a, a, an event here? You have people knowing that are coming here? And nobody could have this stuff ready? Or even think about where it was going to be? Well, I'm just here to open the lodge. See what I mean? Yeah, I hear you. Uh, Greg?
1: You know, Mark? Uh, Everything you said was exactly spot on, and I I read this book recently that made me think about a lot of it. You may have heard of it. It's it's called Start with Why, by Simon Sinek.
3: Oh yeah, and I like Simon. he he
1: he was just echoing your points about you know why things happen. You know, the entrepreneur, and he gave several examples in the book. I won't get into, but all the Everything once they – and Apple was one of the examples he gave. You know, when Steve Jobs left for a period of time, Apple struggled because they had lost their why. In other words, and then when he came back, he reinvigorated it. And the fraternity is the same point, and you've made those points all night, is we've lost our why. Uh, not all of us, but I think the, the collective is. And I, I, I appreciate your kind words to, to about Darren, Bill, and myself and our efforts on, uh, what we do. Cause it is, I think for us, it is more than a hobby. You know, it is, it's, you know, I think, you know, Darren and Bill and I talk frequently. It's, you know, sort of a way of life. Now it's not obviously what we do all day, but, but yet it is because, you know, you try to live up to some of those things that we, we, learn about in the educational pieces and the degrees and whatnot but i i I think till our fraternity can come back and grasp those core things in a hard you know drastic way the the management side is still going to continue but i do think mark hearing what you've said tonight and, and how you laid it out i do think that entrepreneurial spirit crowd those smaller is going to gain in numbers. And I, I think to Bill's point, we got to keep those that do come in like that. We got to keep them with us and engaged. And I think in the long run, this turns around. It won't turn around overnight. And, and Mark, you said one other thing that was relevant about, uh, you talked about Chris Hodap and why this fraternity is important. And it is this fraternity has a lot of value to society. I could argue maybe more now than ever.
3: That's where society is. Yep, I agree with that point wholeheartedly.
1: But if if we let it die out, shame on us or shame on those, you know, even coming after us. Because once it's lost, you can't put it back together. The numbers may change, but so what? You know, it's a anything's a numbers game. It's what it's done in our history, and it's what it has the potential – to do again for the good of mankind. That's what motivates me. Darren and I, we've talked about this. To me, it's, you know, the the whole purpose of going into Lodge and learning is so that when you come back out, you are a greater piece of the society as a whole. That's the point of it. Okay, the business beings, okay, all that. Yeah, that's necessary to, to a degree. But it's the internal change. That you can have as an individual that when you go back out in society, in the business world or on a a school board or whatever it is you're doing, you've taken that back out there. And that's the impact. For me, that's the why of the fraternity. Because it is personal growth, but you got to
3: take it back out there and share it in the community to me. Well, you're you're absolutely right. And I'm going to follow up on your point with this, with, 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 with these two quick ones. Because you're absolutely 100% correct. When it comes to the personal side, the fraternity has, and, and if you understand, which I do, because I actually write write the books, I actually this is what I actually did when I was getting ready to retire about the motivation stuff and everything else, which I'm going back into now. The thing that you have to understand is on the personal side, masonry has the personal self-improvement aspect of it in a beautiful little ball already that 99% of the fraternity doesn't know how to explore. It's there. And to prove my point on that is the other side of that. It also has the societal with business wrapped up in another little ball right there in front of everybody. But again, 99% of the fraternity doesn't know how to, how to use it. And the classic example is, and I'm here to tell you, from both experience and from my point on the perch, if you wish, which is at the top of the business uh, startup, there is no other place. None. Zero. Nada. I don't give a crap. If it's an Ivy League business school Whartons and trust me when I tell you I have gone up against and had my writings right up against and had to call out people like uh, what' we call Jeremy Steegel down at Wharton's and Paul Krugman in the New York Times and I've been in their exact same publications calling them out doing this so I've done this on the big stage. I'm here to tell you there is no other place on this planet where you can both learn civics and business structure in a real-time environment than in a masonic hall in a large meeting there is no other place. You will learn more about business. You will learn more about management. You will learn more about a lot of other different things within the structure of the lodge. If you understand what is actually being conducted and happening and why within it. There is no other place on this planet. And 18 and 25 year olds have no clue. And 45 to 50 year olds, I mean 35 to 50 year olds don't have a real understanding. And the 55 to 70 year olds have forgotten a lot of it. And it's all right there. It's just that most People don't understand it. There's a reason why the chairs are the way that they are. There's a reason why that you do certain things the way that you do. There's a real, you cannot on this planet anywhere be involved in what we might call parliamentary, true parliamentary actions and discussions in real time, real form that you could start tomorrow. Put in a lodge. Yeah. You can't. So you take a 25, 25 year twenty-five-year-old kid who doesn't understand anything, doesn't understand anything about government, doesn't understand anything about business structure, doesn't understand anything about anything, and put him in a lodge room where he's gotta follow the rules and the regulations. And the protocols of a actual tile meeting to know how to ask, when to ask, what to ask, who to ask, when he has to shut up, no matter what his point is, and what's going on when you meet people of pomp and circumstance and everything else, there is no other place on the planet. And the fraternity is throwing that away on a daily basis, and it pisses me off, to be frank. Because all you got to do if you know what you're looking at is when you look at it. But the first day after I was made a Master Mason, I was sitting on the back bench, as we like to say, right? And I saw my first EA degree. The first time I had seen an actual degree being performed, I got it. I sat back in awe. And I've used this term, you might have heard, Darren might have heard me use it, or you might have read it in in, in some of my stuff. I got the genius that was in our rituals. It was like the sky opened up and, you know, the angels were singing. I said, oh, my God. And people who have been in the fraternity 30 years next to me didn't have any clue of what I was looking at. I'm telling you. And I mean it from the bottom of my heart. The fraternity itself doesn't have any understanding half the time of what the heck is going on with the stuff that we do. It's the reason why I am basically apoplectic when it comes to rituals without reverence is meaningless. And there are reasons why we do what we do. 90% of the people who teach the stuff and get medals for the stuff and reward themselves in grand lines and everything else with this stuff don't have any understanding of what the heck they're doing either. All they know is they know how to go from here to here, do this, say this word, recite this, do this, and they can do that better than anybody else. Who gives a crap? It doesn't mean anything. It's worthless. Unless you understand what you are doing and why. Other than that, it's all meaningless. You might as well just close up shop. Go be an Elks Club. Because at least if you decide you're going to be an Elks Club, you can be a decent Elks Club. But if you try to be a uh, a Freemason Masonic fraternity and be kind of like, you know, competing with the Elks, competing with the Rotary, it's like competing with Amazon. You ain't going to do it. It ain't going to happen. Last time I looked, uh, Louis Vuitton doesn't give a crap of what Coach is doing. They don't concern themselves with it. Rolls-Royce, last time I looked, doesn't care what Mercedes is doing. And I'm being general, it, it, generally nice because I'm not saying uh, they don't care what Toyota is doing. <laughs> but they don't. Yeah. And the reason why that you don't is because you make decisions based upon who's buying Rolls Royces. What makes the brand of Rolls Royce better? What keeps the brand of Rolls Royce up where it belongs? Not allows it to get solid. A classic example is that, remember when buying a Mercedes was something? Now everybody buys a Mercedes. But Mercedes no longer has that pristine or that, what's the, what's the word I'm looking for, Passage, that it used to have when it was sitting on a corner. It's a Mercedes. That's yeah, a nice car. But it's a Mercedes. You, Panache, that's the word I'm looking for. If you want Panache, you buy a Bentley. You know, that's why people say to me sometimes, they'll, they'll say, you know, uh, well, I see, you've got an old car, I don't need a car. I say, well, what do you mean you don't need a car? I say, because when I go out to an event, I have a driver. When I want to impress people, I have a driver. Because I'm going to go ahead and tell you, when we're standing at the uh, concierge, and you say, yeah, bring my car around, uh, the, the Ferrari, and you say it loudly so everybody knows that's great. But when I say, tell my driver to bring the car around, guess what? I could play that game, too. But I understand the game. And that's why I'm using those examples. Because if you're going to play the game, you're going to play the market, and you're going to be doing certain things. you got to know what game you're playing with. you got to know who's watching, who's looking, who's searching who's making the decision whether to buy, you know, I can afford a Bentley, but I don't know why I should. I should maybe buy a Mercedes. Well, Mercedes buyers, they want to hear that, but Bentleys, if they hear that, they're like going out of their mind. He can afford it. Why is he picking them? We can't allow that to happen. That's when you understand your market. That's the reason why I said I'd cut the fraternity by two-thirds. Because that last third would get and know what it is. Know what it's about. And when you understand that and you know it, you're going to attract more of it. Because that's the market you're going to go for. And you can grow that market. I'll give you another classic example. As we were talking, you said about Steve Jobs and that stuff. I got into trouble when they ran a story with me one day. When, you know, I was writing about the people, I think, I can't remember the guy's name off the top of my head, but it was, um, Clayton, Doing the Innovators Dilemma and, um, oh, I can't remember who did the Jobs the Jobs interview, the Jobs book off the top of my head. That doesn't matter. It comes to me probably after we're done. But, you know, uh, they ran it in a couple of uh, different publications. And, you know, I said, you know, these stories, uh, these interviews, these uh, summations of jobs, they're garbage. They're bullcrap. These biographies of jobs, they don't know what they're talking about. You know, I went off on, you know, Steve Jobs has this uh thing, you know, it's called uh the Svengali effect. I went off on Guy Kawasaki on that, too. I said, what do you mean the Svengali effect? The Svengali effect was, the thing about Jobs was, he was a person who put people on their back foot. On purpose. And people didn't know what to say next because you got somebody like Scully who's running Pepsi and everything else and thinks he's a real big whoop to do and all of a sudden the guy like Jobs goes well how long are you going to keep selling that sugar water or do you want to change the world with me well you know what that's not Svengali effect that's like the guy doesn't know what the hell to say next because he can't believe somebody's talking to him like that that's the difference but Jobs did And people don't understand why he did. It's because he got the reaction that he uh, wanted and he needed. just the same way when he came back. I wrote a story one time about when he came back, and I used the David Lee Roth thing that people don't understand. Do you know why he did what he did when he came back to Apple and was able to create and make and save Apple? To quote Van Halen, David Lee Roth, because he bent to the edge and he stood and looked down. You know, and we know the rest of the lines from there. Unless you've been to that edge, which I have, that edge where you thought you were something and then you lost all of it. Gone. You go from boy genius to just boy. And that's even a step up from what people really want to call you. You don't understand. But once you've been there, you get it. And it's that mentality, it's that understanding like love, you understand. That's why Jobs made the decisions that he did when he came back. That were different from everything before. And if I'm not mistaken, if I remember correctly, and if I say the wrong name, I'm sorry, but I know it's one of you. I think it was... Um, Brother not, but if it was Brother Hossler, I'm sorry, but if I was reading correctly, one of you had gone through those times, too. You've been there to the point where, if I was reading the thing correctly, where you didn't know if you were going to make it out. Well, those are situations like love. Nobody can explain those to you until you've been there. But once you've been there, all I have to say is, it's like that. You'd say, oh, okay, I get it. Yep, I understand.
1: Yeah, I think that's that's Bill.
4: They always say that, you know, oh, like somebody in a war can't tell you what it's like, and you wouldn't believe them if you did. And I can, and it's kind. Of, I don't want to even equate myself to something like that, but it's absolutely true. And once you've been in an extremely rough situation where you didn't even know what you're going to be doing the next day, you just can't really, you know. And people, you know, they're so used to sitting back on their couch watching TV and and some of them, bless them, they've never had to, you know, really grind and scrape. You know, that's you know, they will just never understand. Well, you mean you had to deal without a Coke today or what? No. <laughs> yeah, you're absolutely right.
3: It's true. It's, it's one of those type of things. And it's also one of those things that, again, not to sound arrogant or, you know, sound like I'm trying to make something bigger than what it is, but what I, this is the idea that I tell people and I try to express certain thing as we've been talking about tonight about management and entrepreneurs. See, the entrepreneur understands and has probably been through it once or twice. And if they haven't, they're going to, and they know it. But we're not talking about been in financial straits. We're not talking about, um, you know, not sure if I was going to be able to pay this bill or that bill late or something like that. I mean, I have been to the point of right on top of the world and lost everything where I was about to be homeless. So it's not a case of, yeah, I'm gonna be doing this and I'm not gonna be able to pay this bill. I wouldn't be I I would call it a wonderful day if I could have paid a bill late. (laughs) Any bill.
4: (laughs) I remember hearing once there was a some famous comedian said that when he was struggling to go through, he every month he'd take all his all his bills and he'd put them in a hat and he'd take like three of them out, and those were the ones he'd pay that month. One of the creditors starts really giving him a hard time, and he says, "You know what? You keep this up, I'm not going to bother to put your bill in the hat next." Time.
3: <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's it's really true. But this is this is the mindset of the entrepreneur against the management. The well, management thinks that I'm going to take a reduction of ten percent in my pay this week. The entrepreneur knows that I might have to, you know, ask this employee to take a 10% reduction in his pay. But for the, for the fourth week in a row, I'm not going to have any pay.
4: Absolutely. I mean, I've had to pay people out of my pocket before in some of the jobs that I've hired them for just, you know, in business. You know, it's just because you want them, you know, they're trying to help you. And you absolutely you know, need to keep them happy, or you're not going to have them.
3: And the other part about it is too, it's your commitment. When you're in a absolutely. when you're in a when you're in a business and you're the entrepreneur, you understand that that's what they get paid first. I
4: remember one time there was a I was going to go into business. I was really young, like twenty two, twenty three, with a fella, and he said, "Well, what if it fails?" I said, "Well, I've got nothing right now." I said, "I'll still have nothing at the end of that." I said, "Let's give it a shot." But he, you know, he obviously didn't have that spirit because he backed out. But you know, you know, I was born with nothing. I'm sure as heck sure I'm going to end up leaving with nothing, and that's just the way it seems to go.
3: You're exact. Here's the thing. This is something that I came up with not that long ago, and I was talking with somebody and they said, you know, that's that sounds, you got to put that down maybe into a bookmark. I said, yeah, we'll see. And I said to them, you know, what people don't understand, the difference between the budding entrepreneur and the billionaire is really no difference. Their mindset is the same, though it may sound like it's not. Because the billionaire has a billion dollars and he believes and he comes from the point of business where he believes that he has enough that no matter what happens, he's never going to lose enough that he's not going to be able to still live comfortable. Sure. And the entrepreneur who's just starting has got nothing knows that no matter what happens, and if he loses everything, well, he—that's probably more than he started with to begin with, and he'll just do it again to start again. But their you fear know, level is both the same. They both come from the same point of view. No absolutely.
4: I—I I took over the running of a day-to-day running of a Masonic temple one time. You talk about frustration—that was <laughs> it manifold. Um, I told him at one time, I said, you know what? I'm gonna drag you people kicking and screaming into this, you know, to success. I says, because you know, I mean everything that I tried to do, they put a roadblock in it. And eventually we ended up I took the I was the pioneer, so I took the arrows, but the next person that that took my place ended up taking my ideas and he ran with it and to this day, instead of that building closing in six months. Like they tried to say that time. Actually, it's still going and it's thriving now. And so it can be done. You Absolutely. just have to have the cojones to do it.
3: And again, that entrepreneurial spirit is you can look at it and you don't care if you if you're getting the credit or not. You know that your ideas work and it's going and that's good enough for Absolutely. you. Next. I'm on to the next thing.
4: Well, you know, and they was like there was simple little things like they had this beautiful commandery for the Knights Templar on the top floor. It was it was seat three hundred people, and it was beautiful. It was done in the Tudor style. It was still it was like a night in Art Deco, along with it, it was built in the twenties. And they would rent the, ball, the ballroom downstairs for for receptions. But so since well. Why don't? What about weddings? They said, "Well, we don't have any place." Before. I said, "Well, you got that Templar thing; there's crosses all over it. It looks like a church. It'd be perfect for it." Oh, we've never done that. So, well, Let's give it a try. We haven't got anything to do. And I, to this day, they're actually renting that out, doing weddings in it. And now they have, you know, they actually have air conditioning in the um, downstairs uh, ballroom, so that people will rent it during the summer. if <laughs> that was the toughest part. When you go in there, you, know, you try to generate revenue by being a reception hall. We were the only reception hall in Fort Wayne that was never booked completely a couple of years in advance. And I always oh, so thought that's crazy. And then I started realizing you, about this time of year in August, somebody would come up there and want to see the place. And it was a beautiful building. You can still see pictures of it online. But they said, Oh, this is gorgeous. And I said, well, She says, Is this made open? I says, Yes. She says, well, how much do you want They had it set for six hundred dollars, which is a steal. And they said, Well, you're kidding. It's open. I said, Yeah. They said, Well, I think we'll take it. Says, well, we're gonna put the bar over here and I and and we're going And it says, if the air conditioning rests well, there is a couple things you should know. There is no air conditioning. This building creates air conditioning in the twenties. Well, that's all right, we can get some fans and stuff, we'll make it feel comfortable okay. They said, we're going to put the bar over here and we're going to have the bartender. So I said, um, that's thing number two. And like, they said, what? I said, well, I said, we can't have alcohol in here. And he says, oh, okay, well, that's no big deal. We'll just have a champagne toast. And you'll have, have a couple. I said, no, can't do that. They look at me like, well, why? I said, because of temperance zealous in the 1900s passed a grand large law that says you can't have alcohol in the building. And they look at you like you're from Mars, and and, and they say, well, "Well, we'll call you back when we're ready. We'll, we'll make a plan and we'll, um, we'll we'll sign the thing then. Never hear from them again."
3: <laughs> but
4: you know, and it's like they just did not see. I, you know, they said, "Oh, you, I'm alcohol in this building. You're going to have drunken nations passed out on the side of this road. They're going to be all fair people and think, oh, we're a bunch of people with just this." I says, really? I says, how many, just by chance, how many, uh, drunken masons have you seen who are shriners who are passed out on the sidewalk at the shrine and after their bar, silence? I says, it's all, you know, I says, it's all about moderation. It's about watching. And it's just like a regular bar. A regular bar is not going to overserve you because they're going to worry about liability. It's the same situation here. But they they have all these things in their way, these stumbling blocks that they put forth before themselves to keep, you know, keep them from succeeding.
3: It's, you know, the thing that you have to make these, let's just say, people, management or whatever. Let me try to put it this way, right? You get this thing with no alcohol, no this, no that. And some of it I can understand because what people don't understand, a lot of people who aren't in business don't understand, is because this fraternity is set up the way that it is, That a lot of this fraternity and the litigious aspects that we're in right now and have grown in the last, let's just say, 30 years, really grown in the last 10 Everybody's afraid about getting sued, right? So if something happens at a lodge level, the Grand Lodge is afraid because things have happened in certain different aspects, whether it came to, uh, one lodge was offering this and it turned out to be something that was bad, you know, maybe unintentionally. And next thing you know, the Grand Lodge was being sued or something like this. And this is, these are the types of things that have happened. You, you know more about this than, than I do, but, these are the type of stories you hear, and you can understand why people have this very ooh negative uh, reaction to most other things. But
4: well, and you know, the, and there is that, but you know, there are such things as incorporating into a separate entity for the building itself and liability well, it insurance. Right. I mean, if well, it was the case. No, you're, no you're, bar no be existing.
3: Well, you're right, and and that's my whole thing. The thing is, what happens is these. People that have been in these positions take this as if, no, it means no, never, ever, ever, ever. No, no, no. You can't do it. It's like, no, a simple thing as far as trying to protect the fraternity from a possible, uh, let's just say, litigation situation over here. Has morphed now into this big, huge, thou shall never. Sure.
4: Well, and it's been that way since they did it because, you know, back in the 1800s until about the end of the 19th century, there was lots of alcohol. I mean, if you look back at some of the uh, records of the early lodges, they would buy, you know, like barrels of bourbon. They would have all these different um, alcohol. You know, there was a worshipful master one time that got, uh, got, kicked out halfway through his year because he decreed during his year, there'd only be beer drinking after meetings There be no hard liquor. And so they ended up getting rid of it. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it was just these, you know, I think a lot of it was is that the women, you know, their wives, you know, they joined the Temperance League back then and their husbands were like, "Well, you're going to tell that wives they're going to have alcohol. All right, well, honey, you know, okay, sure. you like, but it's just that was then. I mean,
3: well, know, that's the, the whole step thing. Back
4: has been revealed.
3: But that's the whole thing. This is the thing that happens in this type of fraternity, structured the way that it is. You see how these types of things, and this is a great example of that, can run a length, decades and decades. As if it was something that had to be settled two years ago.
4: Sure. And you know why that is? It's because we have taken out Masonic education and nobody knows our history and our past. That's and correct. so they think it's always been this way. And I had this theory that well, I won't go into that now, but I it's because nobody knows that this is just something artificial that was put in a few really a, a you know, a few years ago that wasn't something that was actually part of it to begin with. But none of these people have any education and know anything about it.
3: And you could easily, very easily say, listen, there's no alcohol here, there's no, alcohol. so we're going to the local restaurant down the street and we'll do it there and we'll have it set up so that we can do it. But nobody, no, nobody does anything like that. Well, they just say, and, and oh, no, we, we're not doing this, and
2: therefore, we're not doing that. I want to thank our guest, Mark St. Cyr. Mark, thank you so much for coming on, giving us your time and your insights. I greatly personally appreciate it. I know that uh, speaking for Bill and Greg, that they appreciate it as well. I want to thank Bill and Greg, uh, as always, for helping me out with this little venture and uh, bringing education to our brethren and i would also like to thank our listeners uh without you uh, there's no purpose in doing this so i hope that you appreciate this uh, and uh as much enjoy it as much as uh we enjoy making it if you'd like to consider helping us uh, defer some of the costs to produce this podcast please consider contributing to our patreon And uh, with that, I thank you for listening to this episode of Meet, Act, and Part. Take care.
0: Thank you for listening to Meet, Act, and Part. For more information about our show, visit our website at www.meetactandpart.com. While there, please consider supporting the show by sponsoring us on Patreon. Until we meet again, may we meet act and part.